0: Sinister Myth, How Stories We Tell Perpetuate Violence. This podcast challenges cultural mythologies about sexuality in the West because so often they encourage, perpetuate, or foster violences against women and minorities. It is supported by an Ohio State Affordable Learning Exchange grant and is created by Zoe Brigley-Thompson and Brendan Walsh.
1: Hi, I'm Shannon Winnipst, I'm currently the chair of the Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies Department at Ohio State, where I've been here for 10 years. I am trained in the discipline of philosophy and I've worked for over 20 years primarily on issues of sexuality and race. Uh, used to be called queer theory, I think now we've just branched out to questions of sexuality and race. Great. So, in your recent book, Way
0: Too Cool, Felling Out Race and Ethics, you describe neoliberalism as a constellation of concepts, theories, and practices. As it's used in the media, though, neoliberalism often seems to be a nebulous term that people use without really knowing what it means. And I was wondering, this is a horrible question, but could you explain it in a way so that anyone listening, not just
1: students or academics, could understand exactly what that refers to? Ah, that's a daunting, daunting task. I I think it's important to understand that neoliberalism has concrete historical markers that we can think about. So it is, in fact, tied to sets of economic and political policies that began to be passed in the 80s. Thatcher in the UK and Reagan here in the United States are certainly the two huge political figures who begin to implement systematically neoliberal policies. And what that means, they're economic and political policies that have to do with privatizing all kinds of public support. So support for public libraries, for public parks, certainly for public education, for a public health care system. All of these kinds of goods, which we had previously thought of as the fruits and the rights of a good democracy, began to be privatized. That happened at a kind of abstract economic political level, but what I'm interested in in the book and what I think a lot of us are struggling with is how that also began to take effect culturally. And culturally, I think it has everything, the ways that we can think about it are, you know, we have a shrinking idea as individuals, I think, of what it means to be a part of a larger community. We often think about things in very local, very individualistic kinds of terms. And while the tension between the individual and the community is a long standing, maybe a perennial problem, it, in neoliberalism, it got intensified in such a way that the individual and his or her or their interests began to be the only thing that mattered. And I think it's been also, as I've been thinking about this further since the book, and I didn't write about this in the book, but I think clearly social media and the, and the roles of so many screens in our lives has a great deal to do with this. So I think a lot about when I walk across campus, how different it is from the way I walked across campus 10 and certainly 20 years ago, because now everyone is on their individual screens of all different sizes, and they all have, most of us have earbuds in, and so we are all having our own little separate universes in what should be a public sphere, where we could actually be talking and encountering people that we don't usually see, and instead we're plugged into our own individual devices. And those devices, right, are feeding us what we want to hear, they're feeding our interests. We go on Twitter or Instagram to see what people are looking like. Instagram is particularly interesting this way because it's about appearances. How do we look? What are we thinking is interesting today? And it's ephemeral. It's gone the moment you plug in. That captures neoliberalism. Neoliberalism, I think, as a cultural effect is very connected to this, this appearance, what's cool, what's interesting, how does it make me look cool and interesting to be a part of this, that, or the other? And then that's the end of the story. There's no, there's no further question about what that might mean in a larger way.
0: And related
1: to this, an aspect of Way Too Cool that
0: I really loved, I felt was really illuminating, was this argument that neoliberalism seeks to commodify black resistance as representing a certain kind of coolness. Mm-hmm. And instead, quoting you, you said it created a kind of bastardized nonconformity, which is actually a hollowed out generic posture. And I wondered if you could talk a bit more about that.
1: Sure. I, I'd be happy to talk more about why coolness comes to be this kind of great example of how neoliberalism has changed, especially not only how we feel and think, but also when we even try to think about what it would be to be critical of our society or resistant to what's going on, right? We're living in a time of a lot of protests, a lot of resistance against policies and and elections, and there seems to be an interesting growth of political protest. But I don't know that it has any real roots in this deeper community sense or a long historical sense of what it is to resist and to resist against oppressive power. So cool became an example for me of that because of its own history. So I got interested in coolness because it has this sense of being detached and ironic and a sort of I'm too cool for school kind of stance and yet we use it all the time that this is and it and it's had a lasting value in our culture so it became interesting to me because when I began to do research into the history of the notions of cool. There are several places you can trace it to, but the one that I was most interested in was African-American black culture in the United States just after World War II. And when jazz emerges after World War II, in black communities there begins to emerge this notion of cool and cool very much in black communities meant resisting white supremacy it meant resisting the exploitations of capitalism it meant resisting the long legacies of slavery And what it did inside those communities, and you can see this in someone, I talk about Miles Davis in the book, what it did for these figures was give them a way to not only sort of wag their fingers at these problematic long historical violence, but to actually step back and create their own world of pleasure and their own world of sustained resistance And so to build jazz or to build the blues as not just like a a non-white aesthetic, but as an, as a kind of music that would really bring black communities together as black and bring them together in a way that could then give them strength to carry on with their lives in the midst of all this violence. Those are the long histories of cool. And so what I began, what I'm interested in is how did we move from those long histories, right? where blackness is tied directly to that kind of resistance into everyday kind of quips about, well that's cool and things just look cool and this kind of what I would call flattened out, certainly no historical register and really no political register to what might or might not be cool. So it comes back to sort of what's being fed to you in your Instagram, and whether you got uh, you know a thousand cool thumbs up or or are not cool is is um, a sad case of example of how we have begun to lose touch with what it means to be in communities of resistance.
0: Yeah, I found this so interesting,
1: and it really illuminated a lot
0: of different examples for me. I was thinking about the UK Mm -hmm. and about cultures of resistance related to coolness, Mm -hmm. which were often located in London, from working class people of colour, and how what's fascinating is that you sometimes see a kind of appropriation now thinking about things that I'd noticed in the way that writers market themselves Mm. as well. And I wonder if this is very much to do with social media too, right? The way that you present yourself in social media, you package yourself in a certain way. And as I was saying to you, this idea, I noticed this example of white women wearing head wraps, but without really Mm. understanding the history of that at all. Mm. The roots of of head wraps in, in African cultures, but also the fact that slave women were forced to wear them as a kind of marker that they, that they were slaves and not really understanding that at all, but just doing it to be cool without actually contributing anything to a culture which is of resistance actually. So I wondered what you thought about
1: those undoubtedly i mean undoubtedly that's a big part of it you know one of the things that emerges in the 80s and this is mostly in the united states but i think it carries forward over to the uk and europe as well is this notion of multiculturalism and multiculturalism which then shifts into what we're very interested in now which is diversity leads us into these really problematic ideas that that difference difference such as race or class but also sexuality, gender, ability, nationality, age. These pro- these kinds of what I would call social differences that they are just cool fashion accessories. And so you you put them on and take them off as you wish to do so. And so this is a way that in the in the 80s, right, we would call it a celebration of multiculturalism. Now we call it a celebration of diversity. But what really begins to happen all too often is that it is a kind of privileged position, often a white middle to upper middle class position, that finds it interesting and cool just to try on different cultures and to try on different kinds of music, different kinds of fashion, different kinds of appearances and then take them off because they were just the, the cool thing for that time. In the old days, right, we called that cultural appropriation. And certainly there's, it's clearly a problem that is related to a kind of capitalist system where we just purchase difference. But I also think it's become a kind of habit where we then read all of these problems because if, we're, if we think of them, think of gender and race and sexuality as things we can sort of try on and take off and it's cool now but it's not cool there, then we begin to just think of them as gadgets in the world that we manipulate and we move around and we don't realize that there are long histories connected to them and that all too often those are histories of violence.
0: And I was thinking of another example here as well which is the way in which the Mexican artist Frida Kahlo is used in Western culture. And I think it's really fascinating because, again, I feel like she's someone who's almost become a kind of fridge magnet icon or, you know, like the Che Guevara Mm t-shirt, you know, it's that kind Mm -hmm. of thing. And what interests me is that very often what people seem to want to do is to detach her from the fact that she was very invested mm-hmm. in, you know, post-colonial Mexico and, and and the politics of the time, and also the fact that she was a disabled woman, mm-hmm. and those things are erased actually, and she's held up as this icon of coolness. There was a a Frida Kahlo Barbie, right? Was it really? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, there's wow, a lot of crap about this. Yeah, the Frida Kahlo yeah. Barbie. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. yeah. And again, it seemed like a similar yeah. kind of thing, that, yeah. that it was kind of detaching it from the history
1: of resistance that, yeah. that she really contributed to. So the Frida Kahlo Barbie, which I'll have to look up. I had no idea there was a Frida Kahlo Barbie. But it, it does show, I mean, I am interested in how this is not always just clearly a negative thing. Right, And the reason I say that is that what I'm also curious about is something like that. If you take a Frida Kahlo Barbie and you put that into children's circulation of toys, right? Then, yes, it certainly does erase all of the history of incredible resistance and her actual embodiment, as you said, as a disabled woman. And, and her, her decolonial um, struggles in Mexico. It erases all of that and that is certainly problematic and commodification that's troubling. But it also opens the possibility that children who are not white begin to get some kind of icon into the cultural vocabulary that they might connect to and that they might open up towards. One of the most interesting troubling things about something like neoliberalism is that we always want to ascribe some kind of wizard behind the screen to it, right? That there's some little guy pulling the strings and making this all, making this, this terrible show, and we want it to be a conspiracy, and then we think, oh, we could sneak back there and pull different levels. And it's not like that, right? It is, in fact, the way that culture is manufacturing itself over and over gives rise to a lot of problematic things, but it also gives rise to possibilities. And I think one of the best parts of resistance these days in cultural formations, and certainly black popular culture right now is brimming over with this, is a a way to sort of step into the void and say, okay, so people want to appropriate black music and people are suddenly paying attention to people like Kendrick Lamar or Beyonce, then let's just actually follow that out and and then have people like Kendrick and, and also, you know, um, Janelle Monet and Donald Glover, these recent artists who are going to push the envelope much further than any, any comfortable middle-class white consumer will be liking. And that's a potential, that's a possibility that's also opening.
0: And what about Donald Glover, This Is America, any thoughts about that?
1: I mean, I think it's fascinating that it's now the number one song in the United mm, States. This yeah. is America by Donald Glover, and that it raced to the top of the charts. I I'm curious about the conversation that's happening around it. I haven't followed it super closely, but what you know, certainly the early conversation on Twitter was very much you know this is this is pushing the questions of gun violence and incarceration. Um, directly into viewers' faces while completely making fun and, and making e- exposing how much white culture just enjoys black people dancing and singing. And I think that the long historical roots there are, are spot on. Whether it is cool, we will wait to see, because I think Donald Glover ultimately isn't interested in being cool. I think Donald Glover is, actually seems to me to be pretty brilliant. I think Donald Glover is brilliant and I think he knows how to manipulate this aesthetic of coolness so that you can sort of sucker white consumers in to thinking, ah, this is another great black artist and I too can rap like that. And then getting the sucker punch of saying, if you're going to be standing with me, then you have to be standing against almost everything that the United States is doing right now. So
0: getting back to thinking about white bourgeois culture, you've commented in a few of your books about the pro same-sex marriage movement and its limitations. And obviously there are many advocates for same-sex marriage, but you have juxtaposed that movement with the rise of the racist carceral state and I wanted to hear you talk a bit more, perhaps, about how those two things
1: interact and in, in the way that you, um,
0: you posed it.
1: The same sex marriage movement, which was around for 20 years or so before it was federally legalized in the United States, was, uh, for me, a hallmark of how whiteness can operate in such powerful manners. The way that the same-sex marriage movement sort of flew into the public spotlight at really a very, very fast pace shows the power of whiteness and wealth because it was really driven a great deal out of the AIDS problem of wealthy white men wanting more than what they were getting out of the social contract. And so they really pushed and fueled and, and commodified the Human Rights Campaign, which was called the Human Rights Campaign Fund back in the early days, did a remarkable job of marketing same-sex marriage through the little equal sign that became so attached to that movement, to the, um, the, the general marketing of what was usually a white couple. Often, I, my, my joke is it's often a white couple with a dog. <laughs> um, on their way to becoming parents, perhaps, but not quite, because we're not clear, not sure what we think about gays and lesbians' parenting, but we're sure we want them to couple up and be good domestic u- you know, units in our economy. And so that movement came to such fast speed because of its whiteness. And in thereby, it's a real example for me of how neoliberalism can function through uh, images and through speaking to people's interests. But at the same time, and it's very important to put this into historical context, much of my work on neoliberalism is always about taking contemporary issues and just asking the question, what histories are at work here that we're not seeing? Because there's always invisible histories at work. So in the same sex marriage movement, the history that I've really tried to bring forward is the explosion of mass incarceration in the United States which happens almost simultaneously with the same-sex marriage movement. So at the same time that you see this large, very expensive campaign to have same-sex marriage legalized, you also have this very, very expensive, large industry booming, which is incarcerating African-American and Latino men at extremely high rates and is now incarcerating uh, women of color at extremely high rates also. That industry, which, which if you know, I always recommend Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow or Ava DuVernay's uh, 13th, to, that's a documentary. I recommend both of those to everyday readers and watchers to understand how large and systemic this industry of incarceration has become. And the United States cannot call itself the greatest democracy ever when it is also incarcerating its citizens at a higher rate than any other modern democracy. So that happens simultaneously with this, the legalization of same-sex marriage, and so that casts a shadow upon it that I think we need to reckon with, particularly as white middle-class persons, and especially as white middle-class persons who either identify as gay or lesbian or allies thereon which would be most, most American white at this point. Great. So is there a
0: tendency for the Western white middle class, do you think, to focus on a particular set of problems that affect white people <laughs> <laughs> regarding sexuality and violence while ignoring others that might be more urgent? And I wondered, I couldn't help thinking a little bit of some of the criticisms that have been made of the Me Too movement and wondered what you made of that.
1: The Me Too movement, I'm happy to talk about, um, particularly as I see it as this kind of, again, unfortunately, an example of how white and white money has, has changed and altered a movement. The Me Too movement has exploded into our national consciousness and it took global root, so it has a lot of different faces. But the major mainstream media face that it gathered pretty quickly was of a white woman who was a victim and I saw a lot of victimhood and, and problematic victimhood in the media. So here I'm really talking about the media representations of the movement, where white women were crying and pleading for safety. And that this is what we saw. Now, that, that image of the white woman who cannot defend herself, who has been preyed upon by a sexual predator, is at the heart, in my view, of white racism. And the reason I say that is because the, uh, the, one of the central structures of anti-black racism that, that continues in white consciousness is the idea that non-white, and non-white men, and particularly black men, are preying upon white women. And thereby we need the strong white man to protect the white woman from the dangerous black or brown man or predator. And so that's how the state and this this rash of uh, white people calling the police at every little moment of insecurity begins to come up. So in Me Too, we saw this problematic image of a white woman being a victim of sexual violence. That itself is at the heart of racism, in my view. And it is more problematic because we know that the founder of this movement was in fact a black woman. Tarana Burke, who has since come out in the last couple of weeks around trying to reclaim the movement. The movement was never about calling out predators. The movement was about getting survivors to network with one another to find ways to heal and survive. And that it became this icon of white women being the victim, I think is not helpful. So I think it's important for us to say, when we're thinking about the Me Too movement, there are several questions that we need to ask. One are these historical questions around how race is always a part of sexual violence conversations. So that's my ground zero, is that when we talk about anything, really, but particularly when we talk about sexuality and we talk about sexual violence, we need to be very careful, particularly as white persons, to sniff out where the race question is and to sniff out how it's working. And so we can see that particularly in you know, the icons. That what are the images that the mainstream media have fed us around these popular uh, pop culture kind of images of the predators who are called out by the Me Too have been People, who, brown men. So, for example, Aziz Ansari and Juno Diaz, who have re, both of whom have been recently called out for sexual violence. It's telling that brown men are being brought forward when, in my view, we have ample evidence that Donald Trump is a sexual predator, and yet we don't have any way, any sense that he is being brought forward for any, any realistic um, criticism, much less legal, legal action. So how is it that white men continue to protect themselves and brown men are not protected? And what does that tell us about how problematic this movement has also become? While I think its roots were very powerful, I think it's become something that's not helpful.
0: And my last question is really related to your book. And it's thinking about reclaiming a certain kind of ethics. And I wondered, what could that ethics do for thinking about questions related to sexuality and violence?
1: There's a small question. (laughs) The question of ethics with sexuality and violence is a very difficult one for me. And this is largely because it has been so taboo, because it has been so problematically entwined with things like racism and classism that it is difficult not to have violence be a part of sexuality in its very enactment. So sexual practices we often think of them as acts of love and they can very quickly become acts of violence or at least acts of power. And so I do not think it's possible to have sexuality without power involved in it. And because of that then the question of ethics is very difficult. I tend to agree with people like Sigmund Freud, but also with more contemporary thinkers like Gail Rubin, a theorist from the early 80s, who really put forward the idea that if we're going to take the possibility that sexuality can come in literally an infinite number of forms, and if we were to think utopically, right? If we were to dream up a place where Sexuality didn't have any policing about it at all. So you wanted to have sex with people of the same sex, that's fine. You wanted to have sex with animals, that's fine. You wanted to have sex out in the park at night, that's fine. And there were no policing of it whatsoever. If we imagine that, then we might begin to think, well, what, where would the final place be to be sure that those remained ethical kinds of relationships? And I don't know that it always has to do with getting rid of violence, because I don't know that that's possible. So Gail Rubin, for example, was a proponent of SNM, and SNM is probably one of the most uh, most taboo of topics for us. What Gail Rubin points out, and what I continue to agree with, is that the question of whether there is violence may not be appropriate. The appropriate question may be how to communicate about whatever violence is or might occur. And so for her, the question is clearly one of consent. And consent, we know, can be very tricky, although there are times when I think we've made it more complex than it needs to be. And so if we are uh, thinking about consent as this bedrock of an ethical attitude towards sexuality, it doesn't seem to me that we need a great deal more.